Happy Friday, everybody. It is Friday, January 13th, 2023. This is the Second Half Podcast. I'm Tom Powell, and as always, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. Now, this is the part of the show where I tell you why you should go get margaritas this weekend. Like, you need a fucking reason other than I'm a grown-ass adult with a job, money, and free will, right? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. We'll give you two reasons why you should go get yourself some margaritas this particular weekend. One, the NFL playoffs begin tomorrow. Yeah! Yeah, that's right. Playoffs are back. I don't have a ton of reason to be excited because my team isn't in it, but I still love football. I still love the playoffs. And God damn it, the playoffs are upon us. So you need to go get yourself some margaritas, some beer, some whiskey, some fine herb, whatever the fuck it is you need to enjoy yourself some playoff football and uh, and, and do so because your favorite podcast host told you it was okay. You just tell the guy at the store, listen, Tom Powell said it was okay for me to come in and get some margaritas. And it'll all be okay. Trust me. Ain't nobody going to judge you here. The second reason why you should go get some margaritas this weekend is because of what today is. As I've already stated at the beginning of the podcast and the opening, today is Friday the 13th. Ain't that a bitch? We are two weeks into the new year and boom, we already got a Friday the 13th. Now, a lot of people out there say that 13 is their unlucky number. Friday the 13th is their unlucky day. They don't even want to leave the house when it comes to Friday the 13th. Personally, I was born on the 13th of May. Now, that was a Saturday, not a Friday. So, uh, nothing spooky to do there. But 13 has never been an unlucky number for me. 13 has actually been a number that I've focused on over the years. Uh, Fun fact, if you go get my first book, which I'll tell you about here momentarily, uh, you'll find that it has... 13 chapters. 13 chapters uh, in honor of the 13th day of May, the day that I was born. So, between Friday the 13th and the playoffs beginning this weekend, you have ample reason to go get yourself some margaritas. So, stop making fucking excuses and go get yourself some margaritas. I suggest uh, pitchers of margaritas. Multiple, frozen, and strawberry, if you can. Okay? All right, now, for the people who are finding me for the very first time, I want to, uh, (laughs) sorry, I'm just getting a text message from my business partner here early in the morning while I'm doing uh, my podcast. My apologies, my eyes got distracted for a brief moment. Uh, Anyway, back to the show. Uh, For the people that are finding me for the very first time, I always do a little bit of housekeeping, always give you uh, some notes as to what to expect here, and that's the portion of the show that we're going to go into right now. Um. If you're finding me for the very first time, a couple things that you need to know about me and the podcast as a whole. First, this is an amateur podcast. This is not a professional operation. I don't have a crew editing and mixing and producing. I'm doing this in a fucking refurbished bedroom in my ranch home in the far southwest suburbs of Chicago. If you hear some background noise, you hear my dogs bark, you hear something of that nature, Don't fucking email me. I I get emails from people from time to time. I heard something in the background of your podcast. That's unprofessional. No shit. 
That's why I tell you at the beginning of the podcast, you're going to hear some shit in the background. So if you hear my dogs bark, if you hear the, the doorbell go off and my dogs go nuts, if you hear me have to step back from the podcast in order to blow my nose or something of that nature, I don't want to fucking hear about it. And just understand, I already don't give a fuck, okay? I don't give a fuck if you're offended by the unprofessional nature of my little amateur podcast. So you emailing me just gives me more content to talk about how fucking stupid you are, okay? The second thing you should know, if you're finding me for the very first time, is my website. My website address is oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippymedia.com. There you're going to find anything you want to know about me, including uh, my blog. Links on where you can follow me on all of the various social media sites. A link to my merch store. A link on where you can book me on Cameo for video shoutouts. A link on where you can buy my first two books. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I have a book with, my first book has 13 chapters in it. Uh, I have two self-published books so far. They are entitled A Grateful Life, The Life Story of a Husband, Father, and Taco-Living Deadhead, and Dearest Renee, Letters from the Coronavirus War of 2020, both of which are available in paperback and ebook formats. And lastly, what you're going to find at oldhippymedia.com is a link where you can subscribe to my Patreon subscription service. I do this podcast that you're listening to for free every Friday, and we discuss political news stories predominantly here. I also do a a podcast every other Tuesday on Patreon for $4.20 a month entitled Taco Tuesdays with Tom, where I discuss non-political news stories and give you some more personal stories about my own past. Once again, all of that can be found at oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. Now we're going to put that to the side, and uh, we're going to focus on the football picks and the news picks of the week. I don't like to turn the whole podcast into a big advertisement for me, for me, but I gotta I gotta pimp myself at the beginning of every episode. You know, if you don't pimp yourself, nobody's gonna pimp you for you. You know what I mean? Nobody's gonna pimp you for you. Nobody nobody's gonna do it for you. I don't know the fuck, man. It's my second podcast back after a few weeks off for the holidays. I'm still getting my fucking podcast legs up underneath me. So you know what? If that didn't sound right, I really don't give a fuck. All right, we're moving on. We're moving on into the football picks. Every week during the football season, I give you my football picks sure to go wrong. And as is evident by the last two seasons of picking football games, I am not exactly the best at this. However, having said that, last year I sucked hind tit picking during the regular season, but I smoked the playoffs. I think I got one wrong the whole playoffs. So, while you were going to lose money if you bet on my regular season picks this year, chances are I'm going to be spot on for the playoffs. So, without further ado, I will give you my wild card weekend NFL picks. I'm going to take the San Francisco 49ers to defeat the Seattle Seahawks in San Francisco. I think the 49ers are peaking at the end of the season. They're peaking at just the right time. And I think that that momentum is going to carry them over into at least the first round of the playoffs where they will defeat divisional opponent Seattle in San Francisco. 
The L.A. Chargers have to fly across the country and play the Jacksonville Jaguars in Jacksonville, Florida. And i got to tell you, the Chargers are a better team than the Jacksonville Jaguars. On paper, up and down uh, the list, you, you would say that the Chargers should beat the Jaguars. But I'm going to take the Jaguars in this game for two reasons. One, much like the San Francisco 49ers, the Jaguars were peaking at the right time. They were hitting it hard at the end of the year, and I think that that momentum also carries them over until at least the first round of the playoffs. And secondly, West Coast teams always struggle when they have to fly across the country and play East Coast teams in that East Coast time slot. I think that the Jacksonville Jaguars' home field advantage is enough to uh, to earn them a win over the uh, Chargers and send uh, the Chargers back to L.A. with a loss. Give me the Jacksonville Jaguars in that game. The Buffalo Bills, the team of destiny, at least that's how it feels like this year, will be playing in Buffalo against their division opponents, the Miami Dolphins, without their starting tor- uh, quarterback, Tua. So you have a warm-weather team in the Miami Dolphins having to travel without their quarterback to one of the coldest outdoor cities in the NFL and play a team that feels like the team of destiny this year. I'll take the Buffalo Bills to easily handle the Miami Dolphins in Buffalo. Easily. That should be the biggest blowout of the week. I'll take the Minnesota Vikings at home against the the New York Giants. I could see this game, of all of the games, going either way. The Giants are a damn good team. The Vikings are a damn good team. But because it's at home, because the Vikings got a little bit of momentum, because the Giants started to stumble a little bit at the end of the year, I am going to take the Vikings at home to defeat the New York Giants. I'm also going to take the Cincinnati Bengals at home to defeat the Baltimore Ravens, another team who I believe are playing without their starting quarterback. And the Bengals, well, they got some shit to prove to the world. So they're going to be out playing tough in Cincinnati. Give me the Bengals at home. Now, if you'll notice, all of my winning teams so far have been home teams. I got no road wins in the uh, in the wild card weekend. That is until the last game of the weekend, where the Cowboys have to travel to Tampa Bay to play Tom Brady, Brady, and the Buccaneers. And uh, I got Tom Brady getting knocked out in the first round, folks. I can't believe I'm saying Cowboys and playoff win in the same sentence, but I think the Cowboys have too much for Tampa Bay. I think Tom Brady is starting to show his age. He just got himself a new girlfriend. I don't know if you saw the picture of that young lady, but in a new relationship, let's be honest, what do you do? You do a lot of fucking, right? And given what this young lady looks like and the fact that Tom Brady has been with somebody else for years and years and years, my guess is Tom and his new missus be doing a lot of fucking. Tom going to be a little weak in the knees for this weekend's matchup. And I've got can't believe I'm saying it again. The Dallas Cowboys beating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the first week of the playoffs. Unfucking believable. So, to recap, my picks are the 49ers, the Jaguars, the Bills, the Vikings, 
the Bengals, and the Cowboys. Now, I should have, but I didn't. I should have uh, sat down and compiled the list of all the the picks I made at the beginning of the season, who's going to win this division, who's going to make it in the playoffs, so I could do a little comparison uh, with that. Uh, But uh, I'll do that for next week. Uh, We'll start off the football segment next week with how I did on my uh, divisional picks and my playoff picks. I I haven't even gone to look at them, to be completely honest with you. I didn't even watch an ounce of football last weekend, if you can believe that. Not a minute of it. I just lost interest. I really did. My Colts finished with the fourth pick in the NFL draft coming up. That's a bad fucking year. I picked the Colts to win that division. So there's one that you know I didn't get right. And they finished. They're going to they're gonna get the fourth pick in the draft. Watch for them to take the quarterback out of uh, Kentucky with the fourth pick in the draft. We'll talk more about that next week when I break down the divisional winners. I'll talk more about who I think the Colts are going to pick. The Bears, I live in the Chicagoland area and unfortunately are surrounded by insufferable Bears fans. Uh, the Bears wound up with, statistically speaking, the worst record in the NFL and uh, are entering next year's draft with the number one pick overall. The number one pick. Uh, I would watch for the Bears to uh, potentially trade that pick. Let me correct myself. I'm sorry. Let me back up. The Bears should trade the number one pick overall. They have a quarterback. They don't need a quarterback. They have some decent weaponry. They don't need to go out and get some some high price stud with the number one pick at wide receiver or running back. What they need to do is they need to take that number one pick and trade down to gather more draft picks to build a team around the quarterback they already have. Having said that, it's the Chicago Bears, so watch for them to make a fucked up pick at number one and pick somebody that's going to be, what, like a defensive lineman, an offensive lineman that they think is going to be the cornerstone of their organization for years to come. They're going to ruin his career like they do everybody's career. They're going to overpay him in the process of ruining his career, and they're going to wind up with the, the 13th pick in the draft next year. Mark my words. Put it down uh, as as... True as true can be. The Bears are going to fuck this up. But we need to put the football to the side because that's all the football talk we got this week. My wife doesn't really like this segment anyway. And we'll get more into the football next week as we have wild card results. I'll talk about my divisional picks. We'll talk a little bit more about that quarterback who I believe the Indianapolis Colts are going to take out of Kentucky. But now we need to move on to actual news stories. And before I get to the various news stories of the past week that have to do with politics in some way, shape, or form. I need to touch briefly on the story that broke uh, just two days ago uh, on, uh, or sorry, yesterday, uh, on Thursday, and that would be the passing of Lisa Marie Presley. Uh, Elvis Presley's only child, uh, one-time wife of Michael Jackson, and I would put her in the category of cultural icon. I mean, she was the king's daughter. She grew up in a spotlight. Uh, She passed away from a heart attack on Thursday at the age of 54. And I'm just going to say this, if I could, please. Uh, 
that is way too young to be going. She was just at an award show like a day or two before the heart attack, which should be living, breathing proof to you. No pun intended. I didn't mean it to be uh, uh, punful with the living, breathing part. It should be proof to you that any day can be your last day. And she attended a, a red carpet award show this week, like a day or two before, and then gone. If you have an opportunity to, get yourself checked. You can do some cardiac screening, do some cardiac screening. If you're prone to a heart attack, see a doctor, talk to them about what you need to do. I need to do a better job of taking care of my heart. I'm only four years away from 54. And I'm eight years past when her father died of a heart attack. He died of a heart attack at 42. You hate to see anybody go at such an early age is the point uh, to that. And so uh, rest in peace, Lisa Marie Presley, and use this as an opportunity to uh, realize that any day can be your last day and you should really be doing whatever you can to extend your life at this point in time. All right. Uh, there is no way to segue out of that, so we're just going to move right on with uh, the, the various news stories of the week that I wanted to touch on before that news story broke yesterday. Uh, the first of which being uh, the FAA grounding all takeoffs in the United States of America on Wednesday of this past week for the first time since 9-11. Now, the FAA did so because there was a massive outage in their NOTAM system, the uh, no, uh, Notice to Air Missions system, otherwise known as NOTAM, is what allows pilots to get information from the ground about their flights. And that system, as well as its backup system, uh, went down due to a corrupted file. So the FAA, out of an abundance of caution, grounded all takeoffs. They said no other flights are going to take off until we get this figured out. Now, they got it figured out in short order, and uh, flight takeoffs resumed Wednesday morning, shortly after they had stopped. Um, but that didn't stop some people on the right side of the political pendulum in this country from trying to blame Democrats for this, most notably Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert took to Twitter to blame uh, the Transportation Secretary of the United States of America, Pete Buttigieg, for grounding the flights. He can't handle his job. Well, Bobo, what would you have had him do? Pilots across the country could not get information from the ground due to the system being down. Did you want all of our airlines flying blind in the sky? Did you want them to just do nothing? I swear to God, that woman is the dumbest motherfucker in Congress. And I'm going to say something that's going to be a little bit controversial. Right now. I'm going to say something that some people aren't going to like. But I'm going to say it anyway because it's the way I feel. Okay, And I'm going to start this by telling you, you know how I feel about anybody who gets out of their, uh, their house every day and goes to work no matter what the job is. All work is meaningful. All work deserves respect. I don't give a fuck what you do for a living. The guy cleaning the toilets in the office building is every bit as deserving of respect as the CEO with the corner office. It doesn't matter what you do. 
We need to normalize all work. We need to respect all work. All work is meaningful. And that includes sex work. Something that Lauren Boebert used to do, allegedly. And I am here to offer Lauren Boebert a bit of advice when it comes to her career and her career choices. Bobo, if you're listening, this whole legislating thing, this whole politician thing, this whole being in Congress thing, while it has made you rich, and I understand it's hard to walk away from the millions of dollars uh, that can come with being a crooked politician, you might want to think about just going back to sucking dick for a living. Okay? I am convinced that you have taken a few too many shots to the face in your dick-sucking days, and the semen has now penetrated your skin, somehow seeped through your skull, and has begun to affect your brain capacity. And it's okay. It happens. Nobody's judging you. But what you need to do is return to your roots. This isn't working. You don't know what you're doing here in Congress. And not everybody does. It's not for everybody, for, for crying out loud. It's not. Okay? Some people, like you, were just born to suck dick for a living. So do the world a favor, drop out of Congress, return to Colorado, and just get back to sucking dick. Okay? It's clearly what you do best. It's clearly the field that you excel at. This is not clearly for you, the legislative part of, of, of your job. The knowing what the fuck you're talking about part of your job seems to escape you. So just go back. It's, it's notable work. It's honorable work. It, it, it's something that we on the left all agree on should be recognized as legitimate work. We're, we're not judging you for sucking dick for a living. We're just saying you should go back to sucking dick for a living. I'm just saying, the, the, the Republican men will be lined up to get a piece of that, Bobo. Lined up. Ted Cruz being first in line with some of those Cancun bucks he's got stashed away somewhere. Trust me. Trust me. You'll make just as much money getting bukkakeed back in your home state as you will being a crooked politician there in Washington, D.C. Do the world a favor and... Go back and put a dick in your mouth, okay? Okay. Thank you. Moving on. And my wife right now is going, yes, move the fuck on. I can't believe you just said that. No, let's be honest, Renee. You can believe I just said that. You actually can believe I just said that. If there's anybody on the fucking planet that you would have guessed would have taken to a podcast, Mike, this morning and told a member of Congress to go suck dick for a living, you know I'm at the top of that list of people that you thought, well, maybe somebody today might tell somebody in Congress to go suck a dick for a living. Let's see. Who's the list of people that I might know that might say something like that? Starts with my husband and then probably goes right down to my children right after that. <clears throat> anyway, we move on. Uh, 
not all stories have to be bad news stories, right? We had the passing of Lisa Marie Presley. We had the grounding of flights on Wednesday, which caused major disruption across the country, and the ripple effects were felt around the world. Uh, so we start the 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 this the podcast with two bad news segments, but I like to throw in some good news segments too. I like to let you know when shit goes right for the world, when people can rejoice in something that they see on the news. And this next story is a prime example. I'm going to read to you now a little bit from NPR News. Cardinal George Pell, who was the most senior Catholic cleric to be convicted of child sex abuse and spent 404 days in solitary confinement in his native Australia, only to have his conviction overturned, died Thursday at the age of 81. See? They're not all bad news stories. Sometimes it's actually good news stories. Pell died after undergoing hip surgery at Rome's Salvatore Mundi Hospital, said a friend, Reverend Robert McCulloch, a Rome-based priest. Now, Tom, why would you say it's a good news story that an 81-year-old Catholic priest has died? Well, the reason why this piece of shit spent 404 days in solitary confinement in Australia was because he liked to rape little boys when he worked for the church. As we now know, priests are prone to do in the Catholic Church. This piece of shit was no different. He uh, molested uh, a couple of boys uh, at his clergy uh, back in the 90s, was convicted of it, and then had his uh, conviction overturned. He spent 404 days in solitary confinement where he discussed the agony of living alone without uh, interaction with other human beings and 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 how he found time to reflect and repent on his sins during that 404 days. The fact that that piece of shit only got 404 days in solitary confinement and then wound up living almost another, what, decade before eventually passing at the ripe old age of 81 was a travesty of justice. I don't want to hear shit about the suffering that that man went through while under solitary confinement. He's a fucking child rapist. Sorry, was a fucking child rapist. And what the human race should have done with that bucket of liquefied dog shit was they should have taken him right out back, put him on his fucking knees, and put two into the back of his fucking head. He should have never been able to live to see the age of 81. So yeah, to me, anytime a child rapist from a religious organization dies, it's a good fucking day. <clears throat> now, I have some errands that I need to run today, but I've got a little bit of time before I run them, so I'm going to take a hit while I read you this next news story. Hang on one second. Oh, that was a big one. That was a big one. Oh, 
God damn. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Hang on. I'll be right with you. Oh, shit. Damn. That's a, that was a big hit, too. Holy fuck. Couple of huge rips this early in the morning. Oh, fucking wow. Whew. All right. On to our next news story. <clears throat> I now read to you from the Chicago Tribune. <clears throat> Illinois saw record recreational cannabis sales of $1.55 billion in 2022, a jump of 12% from the previous year, despite delays in opening new stores and some signs that the market had reached a plateau. <laughs> a plateau? Who the fuck is running these goddamn organizations that are in charge of looking at this shit? I think that uh, I think that marijuana users uh, in, in Illinois have plateaued. Not even fucking close, my friend. Monthly sales had flattened out recently, around 130 million, until the annual holiday increase saw a record of nearly 144 million dollars in December. A hundred. People in Illinois bought $144 million worth of weed in December. Overall sales continued an upward trend, more than doubling over 2020, the first year of legalized recreational marijuana in the state. Sales to out-of-state customers, again, accounted for nearly one-third of purchases at $479 million. Million. What? If you're in Indiana, if you're in Wisconsin, if you're in Kentucky, if you're in Iowa, pay attention, would you? Now, Missouri just legalized their marijuana, and Michigan has had legalized marijuana for a little bit of time, so that's why I left those two states out. But all of those other states that are like, we're never going to legalize this. Pay attention, you stupid motherfuckers. Your residents came into the state of Illinois and dropped $479 million on marijuana. Which still blows my mind, considering nobody wants to come to the state of Illinois. It's such a shithole state. $480 million of your money is what we got. <laughs> Medical marijuana sales stood at $322 million through November, slightly lower than the amount sold a year previously, indicating the medical market has peaked. Now, that's possible. The recreational market, however, it is not. The sales meant continued growth in tax revenue for the state, $435 million in fiscal year 2022, which ended June 30th. Of those proceeds, 25% go to neighborhood reinvestment programs, 20% to substance abuse prevention and mental health, 8% for crime and prevention, and 45% goes to the state budget. Once again, 
$435 million in tax revenue, all from legalizing something that should have never been illegal in the first place. There are currently 113 adult-use cannabis dispensaries in Illinois, including the first three quote-unquote social equity dispensaries that opened their doors in 2022. Social equity licensees generally have had past low-level cannabis arrests or lived in low-income areas. Nearly 200 more such stores are licensed to open, but many have had trouble securing the capital to get started. One reason sales have increased is that despite falling prices nationwide, the cost of legal cannabis in Illinois, with only 21 licensed full-size growing sites, remains among the highest in the nation. Now, before we move on to the next news story, what does all of that mean? Well, much like we saw after the end of Prohibition, where people were trying to once again get back into the alcohol game, uh, demand was at an all-time high. Not a lot of people had the facilities up and running to supply uh, the demand that was out there. And so prices were very, very high. We have a limited number of grow facilities in Illinois. We have a limited number of dispensaries. 113. I just want you to think about that. There are 12 plus million people in the state of Illinois. 12 million. They have 113 dispensaries to get their weed from. Imagine, if you would, for just one moment, that same 12 million people only having... 113 locations in the entire state where they could get alcohol. Those 113 places could charge a pretty penny for their alcohol, couldn't they? So the prices will come down in time. As we begin to make cannabis more accessible, more available, uh, more part of the mainstream, like alcohol did. Remember, We had a period of time in this country where it was illegal to drink alcohol. Now you can't watch a fucking football game without seeing 12 beer commercials. Right? It became wholly accepted and readily available. You can get alcohol everywhere. I can get alcohol in my hometown here at not just the liquor store, not just the bar, but at gas stations, at uh, casinos. I don't know if I can get the casino as a liquor license. At the grocery store. At restaurants, I can get alcohol all over my town. Eventually, it will be that way with cannabis. Eventually, cannabis will become as readily available, as widely accessible, and as widely acceptable as alcohol did. And thus, it'll drive the prices down. But we had ourselves a hell of a year in Illinois. 1.55 billion in sales. Let's get, keep in mind, $480 million of that came from out of state. Imagine what those states could be doing for their own citizens if they just legalized cannabis, which their residents are already consuming, which is proven to be safer than alcohol. The war on drugs is over, guys. That's it. Time to wake the fuck up. The war on drugs is over, and drugs won. Marijuana is safe for you. 
you can consume it. You might even be less of a dick if you did. And in the process of all of that, you can reap big rewards for your state. You could rake in millions of dollars in tax revenue. Instead of costing your state millions of dollars to continue to pursue, apprehend, charge, try, and incarcerate people for a fucking plan. Illinois is showing the rest of the Midwest states what can be done. Like Colorado showed the entire nation what can be done. Listen, I love having your tax revenue flow into my state, but think of what you could do. Just Indiana alone. Just think of what you could do with the money, Indiana. Your residents are fleeing your state to buy weed. They're coming to Illinois, and they're going to, uh, to Michigan. And you're losing out on all that tax revenue. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Katie Porter, uh, everybody's favorite congresswoman from California. If you don't know Katie Porter's whiteboard, you are only hurting yourself at this point in time. Katie Porter has announced that she is running for Diane Feinstein's seat. She is, Katie Porter, a third-term California Democrat who studied under Elizabeth Warren at Harvard University and became a social media darling. Uh, she said on Tuesday that she would run in 2024 for the Senate seat held by Diane Feinstein. Ms. Porter, 49, is the first announced challenger to Ms. Feinstein, aged 89, who has not declared her intentions about 2024, but is widely expected to not seek re-election amid Democratic worries about her age and ability to serve. Last year, Ms. Feinstein declined to serve as president pro tem of the Senate and earlier relinquished her post as the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee under immense pressure at the Supreme Court confirmation hearing of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So, what we're seeing right now in the Democratic Party is a shift in control. Nancy Pelosi has already announced that she would not seek another term as the leader of the Democrats in the House, meaning when her seat is up, that's it. She's not running again. She's already relinquished power of the, uh, the uh, leadership role to Hakeem Jeffries, who I believe is going to do a phenomenal job in guiding the party in the House of Representatives in the years, years to come. And now we're seeing Dianne Feinstein begin to step away from roles, and we now have Katie Porter stepping up to challenge her. The writing is on the wall. The writing is, is, is clear as day. The older generation, the 80-something-year-old politicians in the Democratic Party are finally getting the hit. And they're realizing that it is now time to hand over the reins of power to the next generation. Now, Katie Porter, 49, year younger than I am. She is a Gen Xer. And I got no problem with Gen Xers taking a little bit of control right now. But I would dare argue that we need to collectively across the country, not in Miss Porter's case, uh, but uh, across the country by and large, we need to begin 
to shoot for younger and younger representatives, even than 49. And I'm not saying 49-year-olds can't serve. I'm not saying that 49-year-olds can't be effective politicians. Katie Porter, I think, is going to do a hell of a job as California's next Democratic senator. I just think we need to look at the reality of the world that we live in. Okay, the silent generation and the baby boomers are dying off rapidly. And I mean rapidly. My generation, Gen X, is a small generation jammed in between two giant generations, the baby boomers and the millennials. Our numbers are not there. So when the baby boomers and the silent generation finally do die off, and we, the Gen Xers, find ourselves the next in line for the geriatric awards, the demographics of this country are going to look much, much, much younger. And therefore, the representation of said demographic needs to reflect that youth. It has to. The baby boomers in the silent generation have held on to the levers of power for far too long. And we have people still making decisions today that are so far removed from what the reality of this world is that they're not making decisions that the generation that is now taking over this country want to be made. It is time we stepped aside. It is time that this country was run by predominantly Gen Z and millennials. It's just time. And I'm saying this to you as a Gen Xer. Gen X is just now coming into power themselves. And it is going to be a very limited run, and it's going to be a run that is shared with the millennials until Gen Z takes this whole fucking thing over. So, I got no problem with Katie Porter. I love the fact that we're starting to see the Diane Feinsteins and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world stepping aside. We need to work on the rest of them. Joe Biden, pay attention. Donald Trump, pay attention. Mitch McConnell, pay attention. Chuck Schumer, pay attention. All of you fucks need to pay attention. Susan Collins up in Maine. Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. All of them. Maxine Waters in California. Hell, Dick Durbin in Illinois. It is time for all of you fucks to have a seat. We need to start letting the generation who's going to be the majority in this country have the legislative power. That would be the millennials and Gen Z. That's it. It's over. Let me be the first one to congratulate Katie Porter on her impending win because I got a feeling she's going to smoke that race. She's going to win that seat. Huge. Huge. Speaking of huge, we have huge news breaking in the world of classified documents this past week. Unless you've been living under a rock, you now know that it has been found that Joe Biden has classified documents himself. Uh, Joe Biden uh, occupied an office uh, at a university in Pennsylvania 
for the years after his vice presidency uh, with Barack Obama. And now that he's not going to be using that office anymore, along with many other offices, they're going through all of these offices and checking to see what was there, pulling everything out, getting it put into proper storage. And the people doing so at the, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania there found some classified documents, about 10 documents marked as classified. So they immediately called the National Archives, said, hey, we got something that might be yours. National Archives said, we cleared everything with the Obama and Biden administration. So I can't imagine what he would have that was ours, since we're not missing anything, but we're going to send somebody to take a look. They found that there were, in fact, classified documents in Biden's office, and uh, they immediately took possession of those documents and proceeded to call the Department of Justice to uh, ask them to open up an investigation into this. That then prompted Biden's lawyers to begin looking everywhere that Biden might have any kind of documentation from his time as vice president, and they found another classified document in uh, storage in his home in uh, Wilmington. It was at that point in time that um, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, announced that he's appointing a special counsel to investigate this. And that was the exact right thing to do. Classified documents were found to be in possession of somebody who shouldn't have had classified documents. It needs to be investigated. There's a clear conflict of interest if Merrick Garland investigates it. He was appointed by Biden. So while Merrick Garland took months and months and months to come to the decision that he needed to appoint a special counsel to investigate Trump, it took him a couple of days to come to that conclusion with Biden because Democrats have no problem holding their own accountable. And who did he appoint? He appointed a a former Trump guy to lead the investigation just to show that he's not going to be biased about this. He gave a Trumper full reign and control over the investigation into Joe Biden's classified documents. So, when this investigation concludes, and they find that the National Archives really did clear everything that uh, was taken at the end of the presidency of Barack Obama by both Obama and by Biden, and that this was a fuck-up on their part, that Joe Biden wasn't even aware that he had this fucking documentation, I can't fucking wait to watch the Trumpers shred yet another Trump appointee as being bought off, corrupt, part of the deep state. And let me be clear. If it turns out that Joe Biden did something wrong, if it turns out that Joe Biden knew he had these documents and took them for a reason, then I say lock his ass the fuck up while he's the sitting president. Let's put an end to that bullshit unwritten rule that the DOJ has that you can't convict or indict a sitting president. Fuck that. Let's set the example. Let's place the marker right here with Joe Biden. If he needs to be indicted, if he needs to be charged while he's president, do it. Set the standard. I got no problem with it. Excuse me. What I find hilarious about the entire Joe Biden classified document thing is that they're now on the right, the Trumpers, are now wanting Joe Biden to go to prison for something that their guy has done. (laughs) 
Well, he had classified documents outside his home and his office. Can't have that. Right. So did Trump. So what do you get from the, the excuse makers? Well, Trump was president. He could declassify it. Yes, he could. He didn't. He shows no proof that he went through the declassification process, and you still can't have those documents outside of a secure government building. But yeah, you're right. He could. But so could Joe Biden. No, not as vice president. No, but he's president now. So all he needs to do right now is say, I declassify those documents, and now all of a sudden there's not a big deal. But I'll tell you what. <clears throat> Put them both on trial. Charge them both for this crime that they both committed. <clears throat> when Biden left the White House, it was January of 2017. At that time, that crime was a misdemeanor. Trump signed the documentation to make that a felony in 2018. So put them both on trial, convict them both. Trump gets the felony. Biden gets the misdemeanor. And even if you remove Biden as a result of it, you get Kamala Harris as president for two years. Let's make this happen. You, you guys want to ring uh, uh, Biden through the uh, judicial system? You want to run him through the courts? And, and you want to lock him up? You got to do the same for Trump. A conviction would preclude anybody from running for office in the future again. So I'm down with the program. Let's go. They're too fucking stupid to realize that they're saying what their guy did was a jailable offense. Because they're calling for jail for the other guy for doing it. It's awesome. It fucking spectacular. It's not awesome that classified documents were not handled properly. Not by either one of these two fucks. But it's awesome that this is making them do fucking backflips right now. Absolutely love it. I'll tell you what I don't love. The new Republican majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, these motherfuckers finally got to be seated. We're going to talk about that momentarily. And what's the first fucking bill that the members of the House uh, of Representatives passed with the new Republican majority? A bill to cut the funding for the 87,000 IRS hires. Which would also add, I believe, $110 billion to our deficit. So what is this? Why are they doing this? What, what did the Republicans do? Well, as part of uh, the uh, bipartisan bill that was signed uh, a while back to fund the government, uh, there's additional funding for the IRS. And the Republicans have spun that additional funding into every possible lie they could feed to their base known to man and have convinced them that they've finally done it. Look, we finally got the IRS under control. Okay, first things first. The Republicans keep telling their voting base that the IRS is going to hire 87,000 new enforcement agents. That's incorrect. That is grotesquely incorrect. 
not even half of the people that work for the IRS are enforcement agents. And these 87,000 people uh, make up a whole slew of different positions. <clears throat> enforcement agents, administrative staff, accounting staff, uh, all kinds of people. And it's not 87,000 hires right now. It's 87,000 hires over the course of a decade, 50,000 of which are people who are expected to retire over the course of the next 10 years. I, <clears throat> there is nothing in the realm of reality that Republicans can't spin into a bullshit narrative and then spoon feed it to their base. So they've convinced their base that uh, the 87,000 new hires over the course of the next 10 years, 50,000 of which, remember, excuse me, are to replace retiring uh, IRS employees. They've convinced their base that those 87,000 people are just coming after them to audit the fuck out of them. And so they passed this bill to strip that language away from the, the bill that was already passed to, to do away, to overturn that segment of the bill. And then they go out and then they, they praise that, that bill and that passage of that bill to their, to their base. Right? They, they throw that red meat out there. Look what we did. We stopped it. But you didn't. Because that bill's got to pass the Senate, where Democrats have 51 seats. It's got to pass the Senate. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. And if by some freak of nature, by some miraculous event, that bill passed the Senate, you think Joe Biden's going to sign that? No, he's going to veto that. He's going to veto that in two seconds, send it right back to a House of Representatives that does not have a veto-proof majority. And it's dead. So they didn't do shit. They did nothing. Much like they did nothing every time they ever had one of those Obamacare repeal votes because they knew it was never going to go anywhere. Even if it made it to the desk of President Obama, he wouldn't have signed it. It's nothing. It doesn't do anything. This, Guys, listen to me, okay? For those of you who are not necessarily uh, too deep into politics. The House of Representatives, while it is run by the Republicans, can't do much of anything. They can investigate anybody they want. right? They have the committees. And they will. They'll investigate people. They'll subpoena people. Investigations will be the name of the game. When it comes to actual legislation, they are not going to be able to get shit done. Shit like this is never going to pass the Senate. And we have the Senate for the next two years till the next election. Plus, we have the White House to veto anything that does make it through the Senate. So when they try to do away with the, the funding for the 87,000 new agents, or they try to pass a, a bill uh, banning abortion, or they try to pass a bill banning gay marriage, or they try to pass some fucking bill that says you got to fucking uh, work till you're 97 for $6 an hour and then be forced to have seven babies over the course of your lifetime, or whatever bullshit fucking thing they want to come up with next. Just relax. Is it a bad bill? Yes. Would it hurt the American people? Yes. Is it going to make it past the Senate and actually become law? No. Not a chance at all. What we have right now is just going to be stalemate and dick measuring for the next two years between the two chambers of, of, of Congress. The only thing that's going to get done is on the House side, 
you're going to get a lot of investigations. And on the Senate side, Democrats are going to be able to continue to seat any justices and judges that they want to seat for the next two years. That's what's going to get done. Everything else is going to be a fucking argument, a fight. Funding the government is going to be an argument and a fight. But nothing's going to get done. Don't worry about any of the extremist bullshit that this House wants to pass. And that brings me to my last story, which is the fact that they finally got seated as a House. When we spoke last week, uh, Kevin McCarthy was suffering uh, defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat to become Speaker of the House. And then after 15 failed votes, it appears as if uh, somebody finally got to somebody, that somebody being Matt Gates, that was gotten to, and uh, convinced to flip his votes that they could end this thing and actually seat the House of Representatives. So, in order to get a Speaker of the House, they had to go through, what was it, four or five days worth of votes? They had to have 15 different votes over the course of four or five days. And in the end, there was almost a literal fist fight on the, on the floor of the House. The last vote that came, all Matt Gates had to do was vote for Kevin McCarthy. And he, he couldn't. He voted present. And that was not enough to give McCarthy the votes he needed. So McCarthy walked over to Matt Gates because after the vote is done, there are several minutes where people jockey back and forth to try and change people's votes, and you can change your vote before the vote the vote is called. He walked over, Kevin McCarthy walked over to Matt Gates and had a conversation with him. It's clear sight. Seemingly one of those conversations that goes something like, dude, are you really going to do this? You asked for X, I gave you X, I gave you what you asked for, and you're still not going to do this, you're still not going to let us see. And McCarthy kind of pushed back, and as or, uh, uh, Gates kind of pushed back, and as McCarthy walked away, another Republican representative from, I believe, Alabama went to go actually lunge at Matt Gates and had to be physically held back by another representative who had his arm, what, what, that re the representative who held back the other rep had one arm around the dude's chest and the other arm around his head, grabbing him by the face and pulling him backwards. That's what it came to on the floor of the House of Representatives. Then somebody, another rep, leans in to Matt Gates, has a private word with him. Matt Gates gets a very odd look on his face and then changes his vote. And we finally end the madness that was the search for a new Speaker of the House. A week's worth of votes, 15 failed votes, a damn near fist fight on the floor of the House. And what does the right tell you they were, they were holding out for? Well, they were holding out for these rules. They want, uh, they want bills that are standalone bills. They want time to debate. They want time to do this. They want this. They want that. They're common sense rules. Yes, all of those are common sense rules for the most part. But if they got those things, why didn't they all come over to Kevin McCarthy's side as a group? There were 20 holdouts, and they peeled off bit by bit by bit over the course of a couple of days. 
That tells me that that highly principled group of 20 didn't get all of the shit that they wanted. They each individually got shit that they want. This one got a gavel's uh, seat, this, a chairman's seat. This one got a committee seat. This one got a pet project for their state. If they had gotten the rules package that they all were holding fast for together, then all 20 of them should have come over together. But they didn't. They peeled away bit by bit. Why? Well, because McCarthy caved into them one by one, individually, giving away the store piece by piece. That's why it happened that way. Excuse me. My apologies. But that's why it happened that way. If there was a group of 20 people that were holding firm for a select group of rules, a select group of rule changes, and then Kevin McCarthy gave them those rule changes, they all should have come over as a block and showed the world that they are a unified Republican Party who is truly here to change Washington, D.C. They didn't. They peeled off piece by piece, so they all got the various uh, concessions that they all wanted. And then Ke uh, Matt Gates still had to be a dick about it in the end. So what I said last week still holds true. This is going to be a governing body that isn't going to be able to do jack shit. It's going to be governance by chaos. It's going to be governance by uh, madness. You're going to have moderate Republicans fighting with far-right Republicans. You're going to have far-right right Republicans fighting with other far-right Republicans, as we saw in the Speaker's race. Nothing is going to come out of this uh, House of Representatives that's worth a shit. No major legislation. We are stuck with what we got. And the world is about to see two years of the Republicans' complete and utter inability to legislate. And Kevin McCarthy will most likely go down as the most ineffective Speaker of the House in the history of the United States of America. You happy, Republicans? You happy with that kind of dysfunction? Because that's what you voted in. You voted in a Republican Party that couldn't even agree on which person should sit should sit in which chair. You think they're actually going to be able to legislate? Not a fucking chance in hell. Not a fucking chance in hell. The next two years are going to be a shit show. 2024 is now on the clock. We can now begin having all the 2024 conversations you want. I'll go ahead and kick it off right now, right here. Newsom, 2024. That's all I got for you this week, folks. Tune in next week for a whole new episode. And until then, as always, stay grateful.